the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, April 12th. Is home court advantage actually a thing in professional tennis? I'd say no, but I may revisit that opinion given the results we saw this past week in our four ATP and WTA tour level events. Of course, I'm referring to the fact that three players traveled to their home countries and captured titles in Pablo Carreno Busta, Lorenzo Senego, and Maria Camila Osorio Serrano. I want to recap all three of the championship weekends at those events, talk about how those players managed to capture capture the title, talk about the other notable performers from Championship Weekend. Of course, I also want to highlight the player I thought was most impressive throughout all of last week's professional tennis action in Veronica Kudermatova, who did not drop a set in Charleston en route to the second WTA level tour title of her career. Again, those four ATP and WTA tour level events, the action in Charleston, Bogota, Marbella, and Cagliari, that's going to be the focus focus of today's podcast. Of course, there's so much other action that happens in the tennis world week in, week out. We had another phenomenal weekend of college tennis. We had challenger action unfolding, and we had storylines that didn't relate to the tennis we saw being played on court, but certainly relates to the rest of this 2021 season. All of that are going to be the focus of Great Shot Podcast later on in the week. We'll get our cast of characters, Matt Stokowiak, Chris Halioris, David Gertler, some other of our friends from around the tennis world to talk about those topics. But again, on today's mini break podcast, we're sticking result oriented. It's just going to be me breaking down another fantastic championship weekend of professional tennis action. Of course, the reason I'm able to do this day in, day out here on the mini break podcast is because of the support I get from all of you listeners. I shouldn't say I get the support we get here at Cracked Rackets from you listeners who tune in day in, day out. And we could not be more grateful for that. I've had a bunch of you reach out over the past few weeks. Sincerely know that I mean it means the world to me. And I actually, fun story here to kick off today's mini break podcast, just a bit of a tangent for all of you listeners. Um, You know, I I grew up in the Southeast Michigan tennis bubble. The fondness I have for all of my friends, for the culture in that community is probably why I'm doing this podcast now. And it was very fun for me to learn when I was talking to my mom yesterday that she was talking to her sister, my aunt Susie, and someone approached my Aunt Susie and said, hey, aren't you the aunt of Alex Gruskin, host of the Cracked Rackets podcast? And my Aunt Susie was like, really? You know about those podcasts? And of course, the person who referred to them, the lovely Mrs. Foreman, mother of Wisconsin assistant head coach Brett Foreman, uh, mother also of Northwestern number one singles player Steve Foreman, uh, she is part of that tennis community. And unfortunately, I wasn't as good as Brett, so I didn't get to know her as well as I would have liked. But getting to know all of you Cracked Rackets its followers over these past few months, getting to hear from you, the support we receive. It means the world to us. So I apologize for that tangent. It's just, you know, every so often we're asked, where do you get the drive to do this day in, day out? It is from the support we get from you listeners. Know that I'm sincere when I say that. Of course, the support we get from our Patreon family helps the wheels turn, helps pay for things like groceries and bills. So appreciate that as well. And of course, the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports. You guys know the deal. It's outdoor tennis season. Update your equipment. Get the best gear at the best prices by turning to our friends at Midwest Sports. Use the promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off your order, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, MidwestSports.com. The promo code is CR15. With that in mind, 
it's time to talk about last weekend's action, and there was just so much fantastic tennis from start to finish. And I know I say that all of the time, but the reason I'm particularly excited, it's the changing of the surface, right? You feel like you're seeing something new, even though we're three, three and a half months in to this 2021 professional season. The style of play at these events, the style of play that thrived at this past week's events is a style of play all of us need to become accustomed to. And I want to start with the WTA action in Charleston in particular, because my biggest takeaway was how much of a premium the skill of movement is, particularly when you're playing on non-hard court surfaces. I, I suppose on the natural surfaces is would be the technical stuffy term is what you call grass and clay. They're the natural surfaces, although anyone who's fine, well, I guess you do find natural red clay, but it's all manipulated with. Anyways, the point being, sorry to get off on another tangent, movement was a premium. And you could tell that in, honestly, all four of our semifinalists, but three of our four in particular made their bank on their movement this week. And that that starts with Veronika Kudermatova, the 23 three-year-old Russian capturing the second WTA title of her career, as I mentioned in the intro, does not drop a set, knocking off hometown favorite Emma Navarro, knocking off Karumi Nara, Sloane Stevens, Paula bedosa Jiber, and Danka Kavinich en route to the championship. Now, let's be clear. When you're going through a WTA draw, if I could tell you that your matchups are going to be Navarro, Nara, Stevens, Bedosa, Kavinich, and I should throw in Kravitz as well, which was her first-round matchup, you probably sign up for that 10 out of 10 weeks. If you're Veronica Kudermatova, particularly given the fact that, and I've mentioned this before in mini breaks last week, Veronica Kudermatova, 26 and 15 since the tour restarted in August. Now, 13 of those 15 losses are to players who were going into Charleston ranked above her in the WTA rankings. They were players who were all within the top 35 of the WTA rankings. And the best part, those other, those two non-top 40 losses losses were to rising American Ann Lee, who's now in the WTA 70, top 75, 20 years old. She's only going to get better from here. And the other one was her very first match post-pandemic uh, against Jeannie Bouchard, who has played like a top 100 player of late, and we all know what she is capable of given her talent. My point being, Veronica Kudermatova, who 26 and 15, a 63% win percentage, that doesn't blow anyone away. But that is how you become a top 30 player. And she's now number 29 in the world with this result. Again, you look for her uh, this uh, with this result. How many quarterfinals has she made now in the 16 events that she has played since the tour restarted? Well, in terms of the quarterfinals in her last 52, she's made five quarterfinals. Again, so she's pretty much a shoo-in. She's going to make the quarterfinals. Or you look round of 16-wise, she's made seven round of 16s. And that starts to add in some of the bigger events she has played in uh, over the past 52 weeks. Now, you know, she's left a little bit to be desired at the slams, but even those losses, you know, it was a third round loss uh, this year in Australia to Simona Halep last year at Roland Garros, three set loss to number 13 seed Petra Martic at the U.S. Open, a first round loss to Iga Sviantek. We all know what Iga went on to do later in the summer. You look at, she's just, why is she such a tough out? It starts with you know, again, the movement, it allows her to just be such a well-rounded player. And it would be it would be disingenuous to compare her to Simona Halep because Simona Halep is just a more consistent player. Simona Halep does everything a little bit better than Veronica Kudermatova, except for the pop. Kudermatova has more pop, and with more pop comes a higher propensity to 
commit unforced errors, a higher propensity to miss returns long or miss returns in the net because she certainly is a player who goes for broke. But you look on Tennis Abstract's leaderboard for Veronica Kudermatova over these last 52 weeks, in terms of as a server, she's been a top 15 server amongst the top 50 players in the women's game now. Over her last 52 weeks, Veronica Kudermatova has made 58% of her first serves. That's middle half of the top 50, but she's won 72.5% of her first serve points. That's a top 10 number. On Tennis Abstract's WTA Stats leaderboard, she's holding serve. Uh, you look, I believe it's about 75% of the time right now for Veronica Kudermatova. Here we go. I can get the exact number for you right now. Uh, Veronica Kudermatova, in terms of hold percentage, is, again, a top 15 server in the women's game. Her hold percentage is currently at, I believe, 70, let's see, 3.4%. It's good for 13th on the WTA stats leaderboard. I mentioned the fact she's a top 10 in terms of her first serve win percentage. Uh, That's what it starts for her, and that allows her to be aggressive on her return points. And, you know, her break percentage uh, is like bottom 10 of the top 50, and she is someone who will commit errors and does her forehand because it's a bigger backswing when when pressured by pace uh, of a big server, say Sabalenka, who she's lost to a bunch of times over these past 52 weeks. She'll commit a few errors, but... The opponents she faced in Charleston, in Kavinich and Bedosa Gibert and Sloane Stevens, even in her last three matches this championship weekend, uh, they didn't have the sort of serves to pressure Kudermatova. And in every match she played in Charleston, she won over 50% of her second serve return points. In four of the six matches she played, she won over 40% of her first return, uh, first serve return points. And I mean, when you're constantly hovering around 46, 47, 48% of your uh, return points one and you're holding serve at the rate which with with which she has held serve over these past 52 weeks that's the recipe for a run to the title and when you watch Veronica Kudermatova play again she doesn't have overwhelming size but she does have uh, that special pop where, you know, yeah, it gets a little bit flat, but both forehand, backhand, wing, she can absolutely step up into the court and drive through them. I mentioned how successful she is returning second serves, how good she was throughout the week. On these clay courts in particular, if you give her even an extra split second of time, it gives her that extra split second to load up on her forehand ring, wing and really turn into and rip that ball. And just again, you know, the second serve is the thing that holds Veronica Kudermatova back from being a top 15, top 10 player. She's won 41.9%, or excuse me, 46.5% of her second serve points over the last 52 weeks. That's not bad, right? You look for her in terms of the tennis abstract leaderboard. Where does she sit in terms of her win percentage on her second serve points? And I hope you guys know when I talk for this extent of time, it's because I'm buying myself time to try and find uh, the stat. She's number currently currently 27 amongst top 50 players in her second serve win percentage. And when you're playing the elite of the elite, of the elite as she did against, you know, the Sabalenkas, the Halops of the world that she's lost to lately, they jump on those second serves. They play huge first strike tennis, and then she's at a deficit from the moment the point starts. At the same time, you know, that's why the first serve percentage is so key for her because it doesn't matter who she's playing as an opponent. When she can make her first serve and be the one dictating, she has the weapons and the foot speed to go shot for shot with anyone. 
I think she's a top 30 player. I think she has certainly earned that. I, th- I now consider her in that not quite the Mertens range because I think Mertens is just a little bit more consistent, uh, may not have quite the pop of Kudermatova, but just a little bit more ra- well-rounded as well as a player and, again, just puts more returns in the court. But Kudermatova's got talent. Again, turns 24 at the end of April into the top 30, now has two WTA-level titles in her career, still really hasn't had a big breakthrough run at a Grand Slam yet. You look for her thus far in terms of the uh, you know the level of play she's played in terms of at the Grand Slams in her career for Veronica Kudermatova. She's 14-15 and 15 overall. The best result she's had is a third round at this year's Australian Open. I just, the reason I bring that that fact up to be a top 30 player in the world and not have a second week at a grand slam under your resume a it means you're playing a bunch of events but b it means you're having success at all of the events that you're playing veronica kudermatova has had success is she in the elite conversation the osaka and of the world no she's not quite there because she doesn't have the consistency of those players but she's got special pop uh, she moves really, really well around the court. And again, in her matches here uh, this week against Kavinich, against um, against Bedosa Jaber, she just she they didn't have weapons to hurt her. And what Bedosa Jaber and Kavinich both do so well is they move the ball around the court so well, and they're so disciplined, and they try to wear you down. But and they take advantage of the space you give them, but. Kudermatova could hang with them stride for stride, and she was that consistent from the baseline in those matches. She, her game style, you know, because of how flat she hits, you wouldn't think, oh, her game's going to fit really, really well on the clay courts, and yet they did fit really well on these green clay courts because of how well she did to take advantage of space and to just put her opponents in uncomfortable positions on the baseline. It's a lot on Veronica Kudermatova. I apologize. That's a solid 10 minutes on the strengths of her games, but she earned that. She didn't drop a set this week. She beat everyone she was supposed to beat, and I keep harping on this. And I know there was a tweet out there. I'm not going to dunk on some innocent social media person who works for Charleston who just, you know, was saying, oh, maybe if I describe Veronica Kudermatova as a relative unknown, more people will click on the tweet. No. If you're a listener of this podcast, you know Veronica Kudermatova is not a relatively unknown. She's a rising, one of the many rising young stars in the women's game, but she was the best player this week, and the draw opened up for her. She took advantage of it. Doesn't drop a set. Again, uh, was just, she was just the best player on the court in every match she played. Didn't face a lot of drama. Gets over the finish line, and now into the top 30 for the first time in her career. You know, she was the big winner. Danka Kavinich, only 26 years old. Uh, she now makes, I believe, you look uh, th- with this final, it's the second final at the WTA level of her career. Unfortunately, she's still 0-2 in finals. That last one came on clay back in 2019. Look, Kavinich is a name to circle as someone who can do some damage at the clay events coming up during this portion of the season. She's 16-12 and 12 in her last 52. Now, obviously, that includes the run to the final in Charleston. It also includes includes a run through qualifying and ultimately to the round of 16 in Rome. She beat Gerges, she beat Bencic before losing to Mertens. In Istanbul, she made the quarterfinals. She beat Bondarenko and Van Utvenik before losing 7-5 in the third to Jeannie Bouchard, who I believe made the final of that event in Istanbul. Uh, look, in her career for Danka Kavinic, she's, I believe, 
215 and 113 overall on clay. That's a 66% win percentage, but 52 and 38 in her tour level matches on clay. That's compared to 43% and 41% overall splits at, you know, for her career in tour level matches on hard courts. This is her best surface, and you can understand why. She moves so comfortably around the court. She moves the ball around comfortably around the court. I thought in her semifinal match against Own Jabour, Kavinic was kind of happy to be playing drop shot, slice tennis, to mix in variety, to have that much time available to her because she is that good on the run. And if she, you know, on these clay courts, she does have a bit, little bit bigger of a forehand swing. It's a little, I don't want to say hitchy, but it's a little wristy and very, you know, flippy. It, it's the way on a hard court, it gets jammed by pace. You don't have time to hit that sort of ball. But on a clay court, you absolutely do. And because Kavinic moves so well around the court, uh, that's why she had success. Now, you know, she, I think in terms of, uh, this week, she averaged about a 52% first serve percentage. And, you know, she won like 60% of her first serve points was around 45% of her second serve points for the duration of the tournament. Her serve does leave a little bit to be desired. And you look at the players she played this week uh, down the home stretch in Putinseva, in Jabour, in Kvitova. I think the fact that, you know, those are all players who are going to take big cuts at the return. Jabour and Kvitova in particular. Layla Fernandez, honestly, the three set when she got in her second round match as well. And because she moves so well, you know, they put so much momentum moving forward into that return. She does such a good job of tracking that return down, beating them to the spot, and then hitting to the open court. Just by getting to that ball, she's able to get the point back to neutral. And again, she just, good variety. Uh, you know, does she have an overwhelming weapon? No, but she's going to be a really tough out throughout the course of this clay court season. So Danka Kavinich, a name to watch out for throughout draws. Paula Bedosa-Jabert is just a young ascending star. I mean, not not star. That's too extreme. But she's just going to be really good for a really long time. And you look for the number 62-ranked player in the world, a new career high for the 23-year-old. She's 18-11 and 11 in her last 52 matches. You look at her career splits, 27-18 and 18 in tour-level matches on clay, 108-67 and 67 in her career on clay. Those are 60% and 62% splits compared to a 26-29 and 29 record in WTA-level matches on hard court. That's a 47% number. I mean, look, she beat Benchich. She beat Barty. Uh, she, I think for her, you know, ditto for the Kavinich factor and how well she moves around the court. I actually think Paula Bedosa-Jabert, though, has a little bit more pop from the baseline naturally. I also don't think her ground strokes are as big as loopy, and so I think she's going to handle pace well. I just think she's set for a breakthrough clay court season. She's someone, if the draw breaks right, third round, fourth round of the French Open, I could see it. A big run at, you know, uh, one of the warm-up events as well if she can get in. And that 62 number in the rankings is right off the cutoff. She'll have to play qualifying. She'll get into qualifying. Can't she just directly get into main draws? That's the question. But, I mean, look— in the match against Kudermatova, she didn't make enough first serves. She only made 45% of them. Kudermatova was able to play on her front foot off of the return. And from there, Kudermatova was running. But against Ashley Barty, against you know Belinda Bencic, Bedosa made 64% of her first serves. She won over 70% of her first serve points. 
when she's able to play plus one tennis and get you going side to side, she's disciplined enough, consistent enough, and has enough natural pace to hurt anyone. Now, she's never going to overwhelm an opponent. She's never going to hit an opponent off the court, but she's going to make them really uncomfortable again for two hours and just make matches physical. I was really impressed with her performance all week long. She's certainly, again, up to number 62 in the world. Not going to shock me. It's I think it's a when, not if. She tr- cracks the top 50 this season. In terms of Jabour, that she won that match against an injured Coco Goff, but still, uh, you know, a Coco Goff who had looked really good throughout the week and uh, had beaten Jabour two straight, you know, in their two head-to-head matchups. And you know, Jabour herself had just played a two-hour, forty-five-minute round of sixteen match the day before. I was thrilled with Own Jabour. And by the way, you look for Jabour now, twenty-six and thirteen in her last fifty-two, now twenty-three and twenty-two in her career on clay. Of course, though, that 23-22 and 22 record's deceiving because round of 16 in Roland Garros last year where she beat Sabalenka in three sets. Now, semifinals here in Charleston. I, she's only going to get better and better with more repetition. She's got the variety. She's able to slide into her shot. She's able to play big off of the return. She's able to... She just... Her game style hand in a glove on clay. So I think the more reps, the better. I'm very much looking forward. And I just think her movement gets better as well, too. That's the underrated thing is, you know, not only can she slice, but she'll hit the drop shot, she'll follow it in, and then she's able to cover the net so well, slide to the open court, just do all these different things. It was a really fun level in Charleston. I know, you know, Barty ended up losing in the quarterfinals, but in Kudermatova, Bedosa, Jaber, Kavinich, and Jabour, you had four players playing some some really, really good tennis. And, of course, Jabour is going to be in action again in Charleston this week as she is the number one seed there. But we'll save that for our next podcast. Again, those were your big winners in Charleston. Ultimately, Kudermatova emerging with the title. I want to talk next about the action in Bogota and the fact that we had another young WTA rising star emerge to capture her first WTA level title. Of course, I'm talking about 2019 junior U.S. Open singles champion, former world junior number one, and 19-year-old Colombian Maria Camila Osorio Serrano, who captures, again, her first WTA level title in Bogota this past week. It was a funky run to the title. It was a funky event in Bogota from start to finish. I think we lost uh, all of our top four seeds and seven of our top eight seeds by the quarterfinal rounds. It was only Tamara Zidanzik who uh, Camila Osorio Serrano knocked off in a three-set final. She was the only seed remaining for those last three rounds, and you know Zidanzik played great. But I do want to talk about Maria Camila Osorio Serrano because, you know, I think you look at her numbers and you see a player who is clearly on the rise. She's 24 and 12 in her last 52 weeks. Again, only 19 years old. Doesn't turn 20 until December. During uh, her young pro career, she's already captured ITF titles. Uh, I believe three of them on the clay. She now captures her first WTA level title with the victory. She's up to number 135 in the rankings. All signs are pointing upward for the young Colombian talent. And yet, when I watch her game, I don't really know what to think yet because, you know, watching that final against Zidancic in particular, it felt like the first two or first set and a half at least of the match, uh, she really wasn't comfortable hitting through her backhand. She was hitting primarily backhand slices, and those slices were throwing Zidancic off. She was caught in the middle third, you know, in no man's land of the court so frequently throughout this match. And I thought in particular, you know, when Maria Camila Osario Serrano had the opportunity to turn into a forehand 
Her forehand's absolutely a weapon. I mean, as a return of serve, you look in this match, she's able uh, to win, I believe it was 57.8% of the second serve points, and I believe she won 50% of her return points for the match. Now, you know, when she's able to play big with that forehand and uh, she's able to unload on it, it, it's absolutely a weapon. She's also able to throw that ball 30 feet in the air, elevate it, put it deep in the court, get the point back to neutral, get, you know, play defense with that wing. Uh, But the backhand side is just funky because, again, the first half of the match against the Danzigs, she's hitting backhand slices. The next half of the match, she's swinging through and crushing her backhands. And it's just like, then there was a third of the match where there were a lot of backhand errors. And I was just fascinated. I mean, because the weapons are there. The forehand's absolutely a weapon. Her ability to move north-south on a clay court, I know that's a very granular thing, but it's absolutely special. She's got an elite first step, and she tracked down some drop shots from Danzig that she had no business getting to. And I think when you see an elite first step like that, considering she's 19 years old, I actually think that's really good news because she's a good lateral mover, but she's not great yet. Part of lateral movement just comes with anticipation, being able to better expect where your opponent's going to hit. You're allowed to cheat over. It just helps you do everything a little bit better. And she clearly already has those anticipation skills, but they'll continue to develop. But then, you know, as she continues to develop her frame, as she becomes more athletic throughout her career, uh, she's only going to get stronger and get better in the outer thirds of the court. And again, I really like how she moves to her forehand wing. The backhand wing is puzzling. You know, there was a stat, I think the statistician in Bogota said there was like 200 unforced errors in this match, or maybe even 200 plus. That's not quite correct, but there were definitely a lot of errors in this match. Still, for the wildcard Osario Serrano to come to Bogota, win the title, I believe she's now uh, the fourth uh, Colombian player to win a WTA singles title. She's uh, the first in 11 years to make the final in Bogota. Um, obviously, she defends, I believe, now Colombian players 4-0 in their four Bogota finals. So again, I guess home st- home court advantage really is a thing, but I'm puzzled by Osario Serrano. I I think she, you know, you look for her now, 19 years old. Here's the list of players under the age of 20 uh, in the WTA rankings right now. Svantec's the top one, 16. Then comes Goff, 35. Anisimova, 38. Fernandez, 72. Then you've got Kostyuk, 84. Tossin, 100. McNally, 110. And Osorio Serrano now up to number 134. I mean, most of her professional success has come on clay thus far in her career. You look uh, for her. She's 94 and 47 in her career in clay court matches. You compare that to uh, the, or excuse me, she's 94 and 47 in her career in hard court matches. You divide in, in total matches. You divide that by surface. She's 61 and 27 on clay. That's a 69% win percentage, 33 and 20 on hard courts. You can understand why, because that big forehand backswing needs every extra second it can get and the clay helps provide that but she's got some weapons and I'm very excited to see her continue to play throughout this clay court season particularly now 135 she's going to be in the strike zone for qualifying at a lot of events she may get another wild card into some events given she's a former top junior in the world and coming off of a WTA title she's in the uh, in the field this week in Charleston and I think she potentially faces the number two seed if not in the first round in the second round so she's going to continue to get tested but I mean she earned it you could see the joy on her face you felt gut wrench for Tomorrow's a Danzig who had so many chances in the match to earn the victory. But 
Yeah, I mean, look, for the 19-year-old, first title in her first final into the top 150 of the rankings, it's all you can ask for as a 19-year-old trying to establish yourself in the professional game. Again, for tomorrow's Adanzic, same came so close uh, in this event to capturing the title, just ultimately wasn't quite able to get over the hump in the finish line. But, you know, you look for, she's only 23 years old. She's number 80 in the world right now, 10 and 12 in her last 52. But, you know, last year she lost 8-6 in the third to Muguruza, first round Roland Garros. She lost, uh, you know, a third set match to Bouchard in Prague. I think this is where we're about to see some really fun tennis from tomorrow's Adanzic. So another one just to circle as we head throughout this clay court season. That's the action on the uh, on the WTA side. Let's switch gears now, talk about the ATP Tour. And you want to know why we divide the weekend recap with the week ahead preview into two separate podcasts? It's because I may hit an hour today going Han Solo. That's how exciting the action was on the ATP Tour this week as well. And let's start in Marbella where Pablo Carreno Busta captured the fifth ATP Tour title of his career. By the way, here's the list of current players under the age of 30 to have won at least five singles titles. Dominic Thiem, Alex Zverev, Daniil Medvedev, Grigor Dimitrov, Andre Rublev, Nick Kyrgios, and then Christian Guerin, Luka Pui, Stefano Tsitsipas, and now Pablo Carreño Busta. There are only 10 under the age of 30 who have captured five titles, and it's a testament to Carreño Busta's work ethic. Just the forehand works on clay. I mean, his ability to move the ball around the court, his comfort moving on the surface, his success at playing plus one tennis, his success at finding inside out forehands, his fitness was so key to his success all week long. I mean, you look seven, six in the third against Albert Ramos Vanolas in the semifinals. He very easily could have lost that match. They traded a couple of breaks in that third set. And just, you know, I think Robert, Ramos Vanolas had Carreno Busta right where he wanted him after that second set. Carreno Busta looked gassed but he found another win, and that's what the great players do. And for the 29-year-old now, currently ranked number 12 in the world, I mean, five ATP titles is nothing to snuff your nose at, right? Is he a guy with the sort of upside of a Daniil Medvedev, of a, you know, even some of the guys on the list, of a Dimitrov, of a Kyrgios? Probably not. Those guys probably have a better shot at beating the best of the best than Pablo Carreno Busta does in any given match. But on the clay courts, honestly, on any surface, sans grass maybe, you like Pablo Carreno Busta's chances. And just, you know, all week long he made about 70%, 75% of his first serves. He was winning about 70% of his first serve points, about 50% of his second serve points. Got the job done, and again, his ability. You know, we talk, you know, when I talk about Francisco Surindolo, I rave about his forehand sounding like a cannon, and then his backhand being able to move the ball around the court, his comfort moving on the surface, his weapon of a first serve. And I feel like I sometimes get more excited about players' potentials than about some of the players actually playing right now. Everything I think Francisco Surindolo could be. Pablo Carreño Busta is right now, and I know that's a weird way of framing it, but just you know, when you when we, it's really easy to get excited about a player whose best you haven't seen yet because you get to fantasize about what that best can be, and we probably are seeing Pablo Carreño Busta's best right now, but that best is damn good. And he was the number one seed in this event for a reason. Two physical matches in his final two against Ramos Vinolas and Haumi Munar, but ultimately Carreño Busta captures the title. 
I do want to point out that at this event, it was the first event since 2004, so first one in 17 years where the entire field was made up of players from the same country. Of course, the last time this happened was in 2004 in Valencia. It was four Spanish players then. It's four Spanish players now in Pablo Carrena Busta, Jaume Munar, Albert Ramos, Vinoles, and Carlos Alcaraz. And speaking of those other finalists and semifinalists, let's talk about those guys now. Let's start with Jaume Munar. I don't know. You know, I tweet about him, I feel like, every day. I feel like David Gertler and I talk about him in every ATP Challenger podcast. He's been an all-star, and I think each and every month that we've done our Challenger All-Stars. 40 and 15 in his last 52 weeks. You want to look even beyond that now. He's got the ATP final in Marbella the week before he made the Challenger final. And since the tour restarted, he's made five Challenger finals, won two Challenger titles, now has an ATP uh, tour final under his belt as well. You look for him, I mentioned, in the last 52. He's 40 and 15. He's winning 73% of his matches, only up to number 81 in the rankings, which is still kind of far off his number 52 back in 2019. 19, but it feels like a joke that Jaume Munar isn't going to be able to get or wasn't able to get into Monte Carlo, uh, despite the fact that, you know, despite the fact that he is, I think, pretty unequivocally one of the top, I would say, I would say 50 players in the world on a clay court. And you look via Tennis Abstract's uh, ELO ratings, Halmi Munar, not just the top 50 player. He would be the number, I believe, let's see. He's number 51 right now in ELO overall. By clay ELO, he's a top 25 player via Tennis Abstract's uh, clay ELO ratings, which again measures who you're playing, not just where and when you're playing them on clay courts. That's how good he's been of late. I mean... Does he have the huge weapon of a first serve? No, he's probably never going to win more than 70, 72% of his first serve points, but he's constantly going to be right around that clip. And he's constantly, you know, his break percentage over his last 52 weeks of 36.8%. That's how frequently he's breaking opponents serve. That would be good for second amongst top 50 players on the ATP leaderboard. Now, of course, quality of competition, you have to factor that in. The fact that Halmi Munar's five foot, 10, if I'm being generous, uh, and then he's going to come up across six foot five, six servers who are just hitting these bombs over his head. Yeah, that's absolutely something to think about as he moves forward. That's why he's probably not a guy with top 10 upside, but come the clay court season, he is a top 30 player. And I think he's a guy who can just be around the top 50 throughout the duration of his career, just given his game style. He gives nothing away for free. He moves so well around the court. I think his depth of shot, his elevation over the net as well, which helps accentuate the depth and helps makes up for a lack of natural pace that, although the way he turns into the ball, the way he gets his legs to the ball and able to establish momentum uh, allows him to perhaps get a higher percentage of his body weight behind his average ground stroke than your normal player. Anyways, that was very, very specific. The point being, he just does everything well. He doesn't make mental mistakes. He moves the ball around the court well against Carlos Alcaraz. He was making this really smart adjustment of just playing his returns deep down the center of the court and then using that next ball to attack the Alcaraz backhand. He wasn't forcing returns into the backhand wing. He wasn't afraid to play to either Alcaraz or Pablo Carreno Busta's forehand hands in the semifinal or final match. And that second set he played against Carino Busta was the best tennis I saw all week from any player on the ATP tour. Munar stepped inside the baseline, was taking balls early, was absorbing and redirecting Carino Busta's ground strokes and adding some pace on the back end of it as well. 
he was a stud. Like, he just, again, he mixes in the drop shot well, his hands at the net. He's comfortable moving forward. It was the 5-4-30 all point in the second set against Alcaraz. They play this long. You know, there's a funky bounce on the baseline on an Alcaraz drop shot. Munar moves forward, tracks it down, gets the ball back on Alcaraz. But Alcaraz has an easy pass, but Munar anticipates well. Beats him to the spot at the net, hits the volley, re, uh, hits the reflex volley cross court for a winner, earns himself a match point. Alcaraz inside in forehand goes longer. Maybe it was a backhand, and now Munar has the match. And like, you know, he jumped out to after he won that tiebreaker in the first set. He jumps out to a two love lead over Alcaraz. He immediately gave that break back and double faulted at love to make it you know one two Alcaraz's serve, but that didn't shake him. He loses a 6-1 first set against Carino Busta in the final where Carino Busta legitimately hit him off the court and exposed every concern you ever have about Howie Munar's size. It didn't phase him. What did he do? He adjusted. He moved into the court. He started playing more aggressive. And, you know, again, on a hard court, is he going to be more easily overwhelmed by pace? Absolutely. On a clay court? This guy's a stud. I would agree with Tennis Abstract. I do think he's a top 30 player. I was having this discussion with John, uh, on Clay, and I was having this discussion, I almost said with Jaume McDonald, with Jamie McDonald. Uh, and it's like, if I ask you right now, Munar or Demonauer, who are you taking in a first-round match on Clay? I think the smart money would be on a guy like Jaume Munar. And I think that's not the only next— You know, there are a lot of guys you could say that who are ranked above him right now, and that's just a testament to how good Munar has been on the clay. Again, back into the top 100 where he belongs, number 81 right now in the rankings. He's going to beat someone ranked significantly higher than him in this clay court season. Mark my words, that's going to happen. Fantastic start for him to his clay court year. In terms of, you know, I'm sorry for not talking about Albert ramos Finolas, by the way, in as much as I am some of the other semifinalists here in Marbella, with all due respect to the lefty ramos Finolas, who is such a tough out on the clay. He moves so well on the surface. He can play 17 feet behind the baseline, and it feels like he's not sacrificing anything. But the, the other big story coming out of Marbella is 17-year-old Carlos Alcaraz, who he's the real deal, folks. Get on the bandwagon before it's too full. He, you know, beats Casper Ruud in the quarterfinals, becomes the youngest ATP Tour semifinalist since Alex Zverev at the 2014 Hamburg Open. You look for him now. You know, who are the list of players who have made semifinals before turning 18 years old? Alcaraz did it now. He's 17 and 11 months. The list of other players, Chilich, Gasquet, and Zverev all did it once. Nadal did it twice. That's pretty damn good company. You look at some of the other things he accomplishes. Again, he's the youngest since Alex Zverev at the 2014 uh, Hamburg event. Some of the other younger players on the list who have done it. You know, guys like Leighton Hewitt, Andre Medvedev, Pete Sampras, Goran Ivanisevic, Michael Chang, Andre Agassi, Boris Becker, Aaron Krikstein, Stefan Edberg. Now, there are some other names on this list that didn't end up as good. I happen to know, you know, you know, I know who Jimmy Brown, I know Jimmy Brown personally, and I think he's a fantastic guy, but, you know, that's probably not the pro career Carlos Alcarez is searching for at this point. A guy like Michael Westpaul, I, I think he wants a little bit more like that than that. But, you know, again, for Carlos Alcarez, how many times, it, it just, it, we keep saying the list of names he's joining, you know, joining the likes of the Zverevs, of the Nadals, of the Gasquets of the world. That's a damn good company to join. And just, you watch him play on clay. I mean, for Carlos Alcarez, the forehand just works. Like, it, it just does. It's a... F- 
bazooka. I'm sorry for swearing. I'm really trying to cut down my swearing, but it's just un- – and the reason I'm cutting down the swearing, by the way, is so that I can train myself to not swear on broadcasts. But that's what it is. It's a bazooka. And his ability to hit the huge kick serve, and he's even – and I love this adjustment. I talked about it with Yana Konofman last week. His willingness to stand on the alley at the ad side and say, look, I'm hitting a kick serve. You know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. And you know I'm trying to play a first forehand. That's why I'm staying all the way on the ad side alley when I'm hitting this serve. And yet he still hits that first forehand shamelessly and four winners, even though his opponents know exactly what he's doing, speaks to the talent of the young uh, young 17-year-old. And the forehand's legit. He's another guy who will comfortably mix in the drop shot on his forehand wing to keep his opponents off balance. The backhand is more than a placeholder. He's able to drive that ball down the line. Struggles a little bit driving it cross court. But, uh, you know, again, I think that's something that will come with strength. His movement is exceptional. The second serve hangs a little bit, but he's 17 years old. Every 17-year-old second serve hangs, even freaking Riley Opelka's. Guy's a stud. And am I ready to put him in the center tier with, you know, the center, Zverev, Medvedev? It's not the center tier. I can't believe I just called it that. But, you know, do I think of him as fondly as Yannick Sinner of that next, next-gen crew? No, not quite yet. But... You know, I think of him like I think Sebastian Corda. Like, I watched Carlos Alcaraz, who won a bunch of challenger titles at the end of last year, as you know. And now you look for Carlos Alcaraz. I, I didn't give you guys his last 52 weeks. I always give you guys last 52-week records, and I know you want to hear it. But for uh, Carlos Alcaraz, now you look, who, by the way, since uh, the tour restarted in August, he's made four challenger finals, won three titles, all of them on clay. Overall now, he's 34-12. and 12, And I mean... The win over Casper Ruud in the quarterfinals, he, Ruud just couldn't hurt him. And I mean, you know, we look for him. He's holding serve about 75% of the time. He's breaking serve about 34% of the time. Again, you have to adjust for competition, but those sort of numbers are the elite of the elite. And it means you're ready to play ATP level matches. And now he's up to number 133 in the world with this result. He's, you know, he's going to crack the top 100. It might not be this season, but it's going to be sometime soon. I would. I would bet very strongly that he qualifies for the French Open and God help the player. Even maybe he'll get a wild card, but God help the player who draws Carlos Alcaraz. Son, it, you know, short of it being a guy in the top ten of the rankings, and even if it's you know, short of it being Djokovic or Nadal or team, like he can beat anyone. He really can beat anyone. That's how dangerous, that's how good the weapon is when it's working. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz is a stud, folks, and this will not be the last we hear of him during this clay court season. Hey, Cracked fans. As winter slowly turns into spring and all of us look forward to getting back on the outdoor tennis courts, we here at Cracked Rackets want to ensure that you listeners have everything you need to make sure your return to outdoor tennis is a successful one. That's where our friends at Gamma Sports come in. Now, if you need new strings, new grips, new court equipment, ball hoppers, machine tools, and accessories, whatever it may be, our friends at Gamma have it all for you. They've also, of course, got dampeners, over grips, replacement grips. They've got it all. And if you go to their website, gammasports.com slash tennis right now, you use our promo code CRACK20, you'll get 20% off your order. Now, I know Gamma has a new string pattern in the queue called the React Pro which all of you Gamma String users will enjoy. And even if you're not using Gamma Strings, maybe now's the time to start, but they've also got polyesters, everything you could be looking for from a tennis equipment standpoint, all in one location. Just go to GammaSports.com 
twitch.tv slash tennis right now. Use that promo code CRACK20 to get 20% off your order. Again, gammasports.com slash tennis. Use that promo code CRACK20 to get 20% off your order. And last but certainly not least, I want to talk about the action that happened in Cagliari. It was Lorenzo Sinego, not just the singles title, folks. He earns the doubles title as well. His second ATP Tour level title since the tour restarted in August, in case you guys have forgotten, Sinego captured that indoor title in Vienna at the end of last season. This week, you know... It was a really impressive performance from him. He was down 6-3-5-4, Yannick Hanifman serving for the match in the quarterfinals. He was up 6-4-3-love against Taylor Fritz in the semifinals, ends up blowing that 3-love second set lead, drops the second set 7-5, ends up taking the third 6-1. And by the way, against Hanifman, comes back from 6-3-5-4 down to take a 3-6-7-6-6-3 victory in the final. Laszlo Ure was just making everything, was moving him around the court, was tracking down everything Sinego threw at him, was using his forehand to dictate. It was a dominant 6-2 performance from Jure, but look, Sinego responded, and he got an early break in the second set, ends up blowing that break, but taking the set 7-6 in a tiebreaker, and you could kind of see the relief in his face for Sinego. He was just kind of like, all right, I think I've got this match now. After he took that second set, and he races out to an early break lead in the third, uh, ends up holding on to that break lead. It's funny, because I think it's the deuce point, or maybe it's 30-all in his 5-4 service game. Laszlo Jure has a look at a forehand pass, and the forehand pass was going to land in, but it hit the net tape, drifted wide, Jure dropped to his knees as if to ask the tennis gods, why? Like, why are you doing this to me? Justifiably, by the way. But look, Sinego wins the event, and now, you know, he's up to number 28 in the world. He's the highest-ranked player born in 1995 in the ATP rankings. You look for him, again, in terms of his overall stat line now uh, and what he's been able to accomplish in his career. It's now, what, three, uh, three ATP titles for him, and he's done it in Antalya on grass. He's done it in 2019 in Vienna, 2020 indoor hard courts. Now he's done it on clay courts. It's because he's your definition of what you want in your modern ATP player. 6'2", six, 6'3", six, 6'4", six, fluid, big forehand, big serve, backhands more than a placeholder, can play with variety in terms of incorporating. He's another guy who loves that forehand drop shot. You know what's really effective on a clay court, folks? When you can incorporate the forehand drop shot unsuspectedly against your uh, opponents and just you know, again, hit big forehand after big forehand, bait them into standing six, seven, eight feet behind the baseline, then force them to change direction, cover all of that ground, track down the drop shot. Snego does a really good job of that against Taylor Fritz. He was a little bit tentative in that second set. I should say the pace, the heaviness of Taylor Fritz's ball, that stood out to me over the course of this weekend. Why he might have more success on clay than you'd imagine, given he's not the most natural mover on the surface by any stretch of his career, but it's really difficult to handle the pace of Fritz's ground strokes on clay courts because you always feel like you're on your back foot and being on your back foot is the kiss of death in a clay court match but Sinego must have hit 30 drop shots against Fritz and then against Lazo Jury he was just really disciplined he you know kept his backhand deep in the court and then as the match progressed he started taking the initiative started moving forward starting you know attacking the Jury backhand but in particular attacking his forehand wing which is the bigger uh which has a bigger backswing with some pace and drawing some air 
jurors. Look, Lazlo Jure was right there. He very well could have and probably should have won this match since I think he was the better player from start to finish. But for Sinego to play a two-hour, 43-minute sem- uh, quarterfinal, a two-hour, 38-minute semifinal, and then a three-hour final speaks to right now how in the zone he is, how you know mentally, physically, he's in his prime of his career, and the results are starting to reflect that fact you know, for Lorenzo Sinego. Fantastic results in Cagliari. Three three-set victories to capture the third ATP title of his career. You know, quickly, some of the other notable performers. I mentioned Yannick Hanifman. He may have played the best tennis of anyone I saw in Cagliari the past week. Had he won the match against Sinego, I legitimately think he could have won this event. Uh, that's how well he was playing in, you know, 22 and 16 overall with an ATP level final. Now uh, two ATP quarterfinals and a challenger title since the tour restarted in August. He is now back inside the top 100 of the rankings. I did a long spiel on him last week. Just I just wanted to point out that had Hanifman won that match, against Sinego, he would have been my bet to capture the title, but he was great. I just mentioned the fact that Fritz, I think he's going to be sneaky more effective on the clay than you think, and he's getting better and better as a movement as a mover with every passing day, uh, but just the weight of his shots, if you give him open space, he's going to take it, and the last thing in the world you want on a clay court is to you know, see open space, think that's where Fritz is going, try and track that down, and then realize he's hitting the ball behind you, and you're like, well, there's no way I'm getting that ball, uh, so I do... I'm just intrigued. I'm intrigued. That's all I wanted to say about Taylor Fritz. But, I mean, yeah, Laszlo Jure, there's a reason why he's had the most success in his career on clay courts. There's a reason why you look for him. The two ATP titles he's won in his career have both come on clay. It's the third straight year he's made an ATP-level final on the dirt, up to number 49 in the live rankings with the result. He's also another guy born in 1995. Good, not great, but a guy who's going to be in the top 60 for a bunch of time and a guy who's going to thrive as he did. Three-set win over Musetti. Made his match against Basilashvili look easy. The forehand, it's a big backswing. The backhand gets funky, certainly, but that works when you have that extra split second provided to you on the dirt. He moves so comfortably around the surface. Uh, He's a guy to watch, certainly. That's not a hot take. Uh, Have success in this clay court season, but that was your final result in Cagliari, and that's your recap of the championship weekend we saw this past week on the ATP and WTA tours. To those of you who are curious, we did have some next-geners on the rise on the ITF circuit. Kabali, the 18-year-old Italian, Paul Jubb, former NCAA champion, 21 years old still. We also had Van Schilboim and Bella Baratko uh, winning ITF, or I believe winning or making finals at the ITF level. I believe the last two, Van Schilboim and Bella Baratko, also served for their matches at least that's according to at Alex underscore Barach, Alex Tennis, who hopefully all of you are following on tennis Twitter. Uh, but those were your big results. Again, we're going to talk more about the challenger level action. We're going to talk more about the college tennis action on Great Shot Podcast later this week with our usual cast of characters, David Gertler, uh, who, by the way, wrote about some of the clay court sleepers you all can expect to make breakthroughs on the ATP tour over the next few months for our website, crackedrackets.com. But we'll get them all on GSPs later in 
the week. So, of course, be on the lookout for that. And as always, I will ask that you like, rate, subscribe, review to this podcast, that podcast, our Cracked Interviews podcast, where Pepperdine women's tennis head coach Per Nilsson joined us on Monday. And, of course, you know, all of our content, which you can find at our website, CrackedRackets.com. You need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. Shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the of an ending job they do day in, day out. Seriously, if you're not checking out the fantastic work Daniel Westoff's up to on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel, if you don't mind me self-indulging, I think you're missing out on some really fun tennis content. But with that in mind, I should also give a shout-out to our friends at Midwest Sports. Go to MidwestSports.com, use that promo code CR15 to get all the best gear at all the best prices. But with that in mind, for our wonderful super producers, Fligner and Westoff, our friends at Midwest Sports, and all of us here at the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I am your host, Alex Gruskin. Remember, part two of our early week mini-breaks, previewing all of this week's action coming out either late Monday night or early Tuesday morning. But with that in mind, you know what we say. That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.